This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 952, a conversation with J.M. DeMatteis. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 952, a conversation with Jamin DeMatteis. Uh, I should actually say this is the second episode with Jamin DeMatteis. So if you want to go back before you listen to this one and uh, listen to my original interview with him, it's episode 364 from April 2016. It's hard to believe it's been almost six years already since I first talked with him. And I mentioned on the show, um, actually, I'll, I'll leave it for the show. I, I mentioned that it feels like I've talked to him more recently for a couple of reasons, and I'll, I mentioned them during the interview. Um, I had a great time talking with J.M. DeMatteis. I was going to just say J.M., which is what I refer to him here in the in, in the episode. Uh, but J.M.D. is one of my favorite writers. Uh, he's written some amazing stories. In this one, we get a little bit more specific about a couple things. Uh, we talk about the child within a lot. Uh, we do a bit of a deep dive. It could have been a little bit more... I realized this afterwards, is that I really could have picked into more of the themes and, and some of the um, you know the abuse that we that he kind of examines in terms of what that meant to vermin, but I still think we we unturned a bunch of stones. Uh, he mentioned after the episode that you know he never really had a chance to do as as deep a dive as he's done here. So I'm extremely appreciative to uh, Jam for allowing us to do this. We do talk about some of his more recent work as well. Uh, he's obviously working on Ben Riley Spider Man right now for Marvel. He just finished uh, Justice League Infinity, which I erroneously had started started to call Unlimited uh, in the episode, although I think I did correct myself to call it Justice League. Infinity. Uh, that was a seven-issue series that just ended, and hopefully, if people go out and run out and buy the trade paperback and it does well, uh, they'll get another uh, miniseries afterwards, uh, which we also talk about on this episode. So, this was a lot of fun. Uh, Jam is just a, a brilliant writer. He's. It's so interesting that this this episode and the episode right before it, episode 950, um, were two of my favorite not just creators, but also people to hear talk about comics. So in my last episode, non-reviews episode podcast, it was Mark Wade, and now we have Jam. And they both come at storytelling from such interesting perspectives, and listening to Jam, it just he, he lives through characters. And it's always just kind of felt like he's got this jazz thing going in terms of, you know, he... He doesn't always know where he's going to go per se, but he, he you know he lives through the characters, and the characters show him where he needs to go. And so we really get into that about you know the, the, how he charted out Harry Osborn's kind of journey um, throughout his run on Spectacular Spider-Man in the '90s, which is again one of the most criminally underprinted runs ever because you cannot find it on Marvel Limited, you can't find it in trade paperbacks, and we're all hoping someday we see epic collections that will collect all this stuff, and I cannot imagine it doesn't sell like hotcakes, and it's always been one of those weird things and you know, J.M. says that he doesn't know why it hasn't been reprinted either, because The Child Within especially is one of his favorite he views it as one of his best Spider-Man works um, even better than Craven's Last Hunt which gets all the, you know, all the prestige and the multiple, multiple, multiple printings, yet somehow Child Within gets relegated to just the original singles you have to find at you know comic shows here and there or hunt them down because you can't just 
download it on Marvel Unlimited, and you can't buy it on Comixology, and you can't buy a, a trade paperback or an omnibus, and it's it's criminal. Anyways, you've heard enough of me talking. You want to hear Jam Mateas talking about The Child Within and other work he's he's been working on recently, so I'll let you get into the show. But before we do, you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for downloading this episode. I really do appreciate it, and we'll check, in, check you out next time. But without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with J.M. DeMatteis. Enjoy! J.M., welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm uh, doing good. I'm doing good, all things considered. Life is, uh, life is good. Considering the state of the world, I feel uh, very grateful and very blessed. I, uh, I'm so happy to have you back. You know, it's interesting. I, in my mind, I feel like I've talked to you more often than I have because uh, you've done a podcast for a friend of mine, uh, Eric Anthony of the Cave of Solitude podcast. Oh, sure, sure. So I feel like I've talked to you more recently than I have, but it's actually been almost six years since I've interviewed you for the show. So again, thanks for uh, coming back. Happy to be here. So before I, I do jump into what I really want to kind of hunker down into today with is talking about the child within. I do want to talk about your recent work as well on Justice League Unlimited, which has been so much fun. Uh, or sorry, Justice League Infinity, I should say. Um, what was it like working on that project, and you know, what, when did the uh, you know how did they kind of come to you and say, hey, do you want to work on this project? It, it was as simple as that. You know, I worked, I'd written, I guess, seven episodes of the Justice League Unlimited animated show. And I guess they were looking for somebody who knew the show and knew comics. So uh, James Tucker, one of the producers of the show, was involved. And they brought me in. And uh, how was I going to say no to that? I loved, loved writing for that show. And that's, that's a show that, as good as it was when it came out, over the years, people have really realized, and this has very little to do with me. It has to do with the guys on staff, you know, mm-hmm. Bruce, Tim, and the rest of that team. Really one of the absolute definitive versions of the Justice League. Um, so the chance to return to that universe, uh, I couldn't turn that down. And working with James, James and I had worked together on some shows and on a number of the animated movies. Uh, so it was a great opportunity to work with James again. And working one-on-one with him, it was um, uh, we really got to know each other in a whole new way. And it was just such a great, great collaboration working with James. And then we had Ethan Beavers on the art who did such a beautiful job. So to return to that universe and then get to do essentially the next season and move those characters forward and move that world forward it was a joy really a joy absolutely well and you mentioned beavers like his art is so pitch perfect for the series and yeah. really establishing yeah. that tone like right from that first issue like well this is the cartoon like there's no you know it just feels so natural yeah i i was not familiar with his work before this and he was just absolutely perfect uh, every, you know, and and it's, it's a wonderful thing with artists. You know, I'm seeing this on the Ben Riley book I'm doing for Marvel right now. You're like, look at the first issue of Justice League Infinity, and Ethan is great. But then you look at the second, and it's better than the first. And you look at the third, and it's better. They, you know, as they, I guess it's the same with with writers too. As you get more comfortable in that story. Uh, you get to expand and deepen. And so, you know, I mean, however great Ethan started out, he was just over the moon by the time he finished. Such a great job. Such a great, great job he did with that story. So, yeah, it was a, it was a delight to work on that. Now, obviously, you're no stranger to, you know, th- these types of characters, but obviously doing, you know, doing the next kind of season of uh, Justice League, so to speak, um, did you find that as you wrote them that you did have the characters' voices in your head from the show? 
You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, and I, I, I'm sure I did, but you know what? I tend to develop my own particular voices. Mm. You know, even if I know what those other voices are, and you know, if I'm writing a Star Trek story, you know, for sure I'm hearing, you know, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy and whatever. But there's still you you create a, a, a version of those voices in your head that maybe it's not precisely like because some of these characters, like Martian Manhunter, I've been writing forever, long before I ever wrote for the TV show. So I have my Jean in my head. You know, mm-hmm. um, so it's sort of a, a blend of the voices of the characters from the show and my version of the characters that I've created in the little radio drama in my head. So it's both. There's there's a tremendous warmth to the way that you wrote the story. Like even when you have your two kind of main Superman meeting each other, um, and they're, and they're instantly kind of understand each other, and they they don't even have to fight. Like it was a nice kind of circumvention of the traditional kind of norm of you know you got to have your heroes you know having misunderstandings and fighting each other. And right. instead, because they're so innately Superman and what that means, they don't have to have that fight. And I just thought that was such a wonderful moment. Oh, thank you. Yeah, they recognize the each one recognized the inherent decency in the other. Is what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was always. It was. You know. I don't get that many opportunities to write Superman, so it was really, really fun uh, to write Superman again uh, because he is just, you know, he, he is the primal primal character. He is the source from which everything that we do in superhero comics. He's the source from which it sprang, mm-hmm. or sprung, or, or did it did it from which it sprung, or from which it sprang? We'll have to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to Google that to be sure. <laughs> No, when sprang. I think that's what it is. Was was it was this series always pitched as a kind of a seven issue series, or was there always yes. opportunities yeah, was, for maybe more? Or how it, did that it was pitched as that from the beginning uh, as as a limited series, which is good because then you can map out your story mm-hmm. because it was a huge, huge story. You know, it's so funny too because <laughs> my preference is always to to do uh, a story that focuses on two or three characters, really dig into their heads, and you know, if you look at something like Craven's Last Hunt, it's Craven and it's Spider. Man and its vermin, essentially, with a few other tangential characters, you know. Uh, and yet, here is the story. It's it, uh, you know, with like dozens of characters and the whole multiverse going bananas, and 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 yet, you know, the only way to get through a story like that is to focus on those character moments. You know, you still have to you still have to write it so intently and intensely focused on the individual characters, or else it's just a big mush of just a bunch of people running around doing stuff and you lose the heart and soul of the story. You have to be with those characters. You have to identify with those characters in order to, for the readers to go along for the ride. And I've completely forgotten what your initial question was. Uh, I almost did too, just because I'm enjoying the answer so much. So I have a question, or not a, less of a question, more of a comment, again, based on what you just said, is I guess that makes sense why you kind of used each issue to kind of shift narrators as a way yes. of kind of having our window into the story and in a very personal way as opposed to, as you said, trying to map out and follow all these different characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's that's the way I have to approach it. You know, by the, the last few issues, kind of everybody's there, and you get the big epic thing. But it was great to focus on Superman for an issue, to focus on Wonder Woman for an issue. You know, mm-hmm. and even the fact that each issue was narrated by a different character, so you had that person and that personality leading you through the story. For sure. Now, one thing I really enjoyed about the series, just because it was such a, a unique thing to the show, was its interpretation of Amazo. And so I really liked seeing you kind of delve into what that character was was dealing with and where he had kind of come from the last time we saw him on the show. Right, right. And I, I'd written one of those episodes. I wrote the one called The Return, which mm. is when he comes back to Earth and, he's, and we think he's coming back to destroy Luther, but he's really coming back to say, 
what is my purpose, you know? And it's, it's, it always reminded me of the first Star Trek movie, you know, when V'ger comes back, you know, looking for the creator, looking for meaning. Um, and, and so to take off from that journey, which they developed on the show, and then take it to the next stage, uh, he was a fascinating character, really fascinating. And I remember your other question. It was about, was it always intended to be a seven-issue series? Yes. And the, it was, and, and the other answer is, I believe that when the, the trade comes out in the spring, if the trade does well enough, we may return and come back with another miniseries. Okay, well, that's the, the clarion call has gone out. Make sure you buy the trade. If each person buys 50,000 copies of the trade, we have, we'll have no problem. <laughs> Excellent. Now, one of the current projects you're working on, which you already alluded to, was Ben Riley's Spider-Man. And so I'm just curious what that call was like to get. Was it from Nick Lowe, or was it who, who made that call to you? Uh, the editor I'm working with is a wonderful guy named Danny Chasm, uh, and uh, Danny called me up, and all I had to hear were the words Ben Riley, and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, because I love that character so much. I mean, there was a there was a lot great with the with the Clone Saga, the infamous Clone Saga. There was a lot that went wrong, but there were some great great things that came out of it. Kane and Ben Riley, especially, and so. Uh, Ben was a character that I really, really clicked with back in those days, and two of the miniseries that I did with Ben back then, Spider-Man The Lost Years and Spider-Man Redemption, where I really, really got to explore that character deeply, and I've done some other little Ben stories over the years, so to go back, and, and once you get to know these characters so intimately by writing them, they become more than characters, they become like people that you know, they really become like friends, mm -hmm. so when you return, like returning to, whether it's returning to this Justice League or returning to Ben... It's sort of like when you run into an old friend that you haven't seen in five years or ten years, and you're so happy to see them, and you kind of click, you know, you pick up right where you left off, and you click again, and off you go. And that's what it's been like with both these series, and certainly with Ben, who I was saying to somebody the other day, you know, sometimes with these characters, you know them better than you know your best friend, because you've been living inside their heads in the most intimate way. <laughs> um, and I certainly feel that way with Ben. It's like, uh, hey, he's back. It's good to see my friend Ben again and, and, and spend some time with him. So it's been been a joy working on this series. From a fan perspective, I mean, I've always been a fan of the character, but I also just kind of missed his his fear because his fear was different. You had, you know, the the coffee shop he worked at. You had those characters kind of, right. you know, that he had a very different supporting cast, and I do kind of miss that we haven't seen a lot of those characters. So it's nice to kind of see the Daily Grind again and, and you know, see him in those places. And also, no one has written, obviously, a Dr. Kafka like you, uh, and so it's nice to see your interpretation of the character return as well. Yeah, I was really, you know, I was really happy to be able to bring in Kafka, to bring in Edward Whalen, who was Vermin, you know, uh, these characters that I created and, and have a great connection to. I should say co-created because I did both those characters with Sal Buscema. And it was just great to bring them in again. It's, it's a good moment for Ben because he is, you know, Peter and Mary Jane have just, literally just gone off to Portland to live happily ever after and have their baby. And Ben has just stepped back into that life. So it's not like he's been Spider-Man for a while. He's he's just begun to be Spider-Man again. And he's just, you know, well, it's great. I'm back. I get to build a life. But can he? Really? Because even though he, at this moment, believes he is the real Peter Parker, he can't be Peter Parker because everyone knows Peter Parker and Mary Jane just moved out to Portland. So he's stuck being this fiction named Ben Riley. So I'm back where I've always wanted to be, but all those doors to my past are closed to me. So who am I, and how do I build a life for myself? That's the big question 
driving this story with all the you know with all the theatrics and and melodramatic superhero stuff the core of it is Ben's search for his future and for his identity and uh, all the themes of the story sort of reflect that back at him it makes sense why you would feel such an affinity for him because as, as you said before like you love getting into characters minds and really exploring them and so the fact that you have a character whose principal question is who am I it seems yeah. like it's, it's perfect for you yeah, that, that's, that's certainly, you know, one of the themes that's run through a lot of my work, whether it's, you know, who am I psychologically, who am I spiritually, who am I cosmically, you know, I think who am I is the question that drives our existence, really, um, you know, on, on one one level or another, and you know, we're all seeking the answer to that question. For sure. So I have, I have a question, something that happened in the first issue, and I, and I read it, and I was like, wait, what? So Kafka knows that Peter is Spider-Man? Yes, you know, and, and I realized we realized I think uh, after the fact that I don't think that has ever been said on panel, but you know she she has you know he when I wrote the Child Within and introduced Kafka the, one of the first things that happens in about three issues in is he comes crashing into her office after Harry has pump, psychedelic pumpkin bombed him <laughs> and he's out of his mind and his mask is off you know and so my assumption was always that Peter uh, revealed himself to her that she was someone he could always turn to in a time of need and that she and that she knew who he was um uh so we pick up on that and so that that ben has someone that he can let down with even though it takes him quite a while i don't want not to give anything away because in the first issue he's he's not letting down at all uh but obviously he's going to go on that arc because part of his journey is he's he's isolated himself he thinks you know because he spent five years on the road never being able to really put down roots he's you know with very rare exceptions he's never been able to make human connection and friendship in all this time so he thinks part of him thinks he doesn't even deserve that so part of his journey here with both with both edward and with both doctor and with dr kafka is to be able to finally let down and allow himself to connect and make friends. That's part of the title, but it's the humanity agenda. And it applies to Ben, and as we'll see as we go along, it applies to our main uh, antagonist as well, who has not been revealed yet. Okay. Now, a question about, again, about that moment where you have Ben taking off his mask, and, you know, the reader's like, oh, <laughs> they, she knows who he is. Um, what, was the, what has the reaction been like from, you know, fans or from readers? Like, it, was it something that a lot of people are kind of surprised at, that you kind of do show that they, she knows who he is? Or a lot of people, just like you're saying, saying, well, it was, you know, the writing was on the wall. She did see him during The Child Within. This makes sense. Yeah, I have, I've only, you know, only like, I think maybe one per other person has brought it up to me other than you. Of like, oh, that really threw me? Oh, okay. And then they adjust to it and on we go. I, I haven't really heard it. Maybe there are other people out there having this, asking the same question. But I think, you know, because I've lived so deeply in these characters that I just, you know, I just knew it. Even it, And then I, I realized after the fact that maybe it was never said explicitly in any of the comics back then. But that's what that was the assumption I was always working on. Okay, so let's let's go back to the child within for a moment, and that's okay. kind of going to be the, the brunt of what we're going to talk about here. So I'm very curious. Uh, even before you know, you started writing. Like, what was the? Do you re recall? Obviously, it was a very long time ago. But you 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 come on to Spectacular Spider-Man, and again, the first thing you start writing is the child within. So I'm curious. Mm -hmm. What was the discussion about you coming on and actually writing Spider-Man full-time? Because, again, you had obviously done Craven's Last Hunt, but that was, you know, kind of a, a limited series, so to speak, spread out amongst the three books. But this is you actually taking the reins of an ongoing Spider-Man book. So right. do you recall actually, what that was like? 
when I first started at Marvel, I did Marvel Team Up. That was my first uh, oh, yeah. my first time with Spider Man, which is you know it's sort of the it's a Spider Man book, and yet it's not you know. So it's like a it operates in a gray area. But I got to spend almost I think it was three years, uh, you know, getting my feet wet writing writing Spider Man, and then of course Craven. And um, what was it like? Well, first of all, I got to work with Sal Buscema, so that was great. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was there wasn't a question of. Uh, uh, of me thinking, hmm, should I do this or should I not? I was delighted to do it. In fact, I think it was right around the time we were. Ra- I was wrapping up five years of Justice League International, and so it was a great, great main gig to transition to, along with the other stuff that I was doing. But JLI had been my main gig uh, for like five years, you know, while I was doing other series and miniseries around that, and then Spider Man became the, the main gig for the next two and a half years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, Sal and I, I've, always, I've said this many times, but it's true. I, I'd worked with Sal a few times before. He had done, like, fill-ins when I was doing Captain America. He had done some fill-ins when I was doing Marvel Team-Up. And he's just always great. But we never really, we didn't work in a way where we got to build a rhythm or anything, where, you know. And he was just doing ba- breakdowns, I think, on those stories. And even Sal's breakdowns are brilliant. But um, but here we really got to work together. And, and from the first page, first panel of the first issue, some there was a chemical click between us, and it was magical. And uh, you, you can't make that happen. Either it either happens or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it just happened with Sal, and it was it was a fantastic collaboration uh, on, on a creative level. And then you know, as I got to know Sal, working with him, I discovered just what a wonderful, decent good human being he is, a true gentleman, not a word we use these days, but with Sal, I'd call him a gentleman, uh, just a great guy, it was just a, a, just a joy to work with him, and in terms of the story itself, you know, these are themes that, just like the identity theme, that kind of woven through my work as well, um, you know, about who we've been as, as, as identity in another form, who we've been as children, what we've endured as children, and how, you know, the old cliche, child is father to the man. Um, what that child and what that child endured, how that makes the adult that we are. And it, as I, re- I only remember this recently, but just as with, with Craven, it started out really, uh, one of the ways it started out was as a Batman pitch. Uh, child Within was also a Batman pitch mm. that I had. That I would think I was going to do in Legends of the Dark Knight for Andy Helfer, my friend Andy Helfer, wonderful, wonderful editor and uh, another great, great human being who uh, just was just a pleasure to work with him for five years on JLI. Um, I think it was going to be a, a Batman story involving Batman and Two Face and probably another character, um, but exploring the same themes, really getting to what did these two people go through as children. That has warped them, you know, in what ways and how that created the adults that they are. And I think what happened, my memory is, and again, it's a long time, Archie Goodwin was working on a Batman graphic novel that dealt with child abuse. And he felt that having these two books coming out, and he'd already been working on it, he felt having these two books coming out at the same time that they would kind of fight each other. Mm. So we, we put that aside, but the idea of doing uh, a story exploring the child within... Uh, within us all was really percolating in my head and so when I was offered the chance to do a Spectacular Spider-Man I took that theme and actually just as it worked out with Craven, it worked so much better in Spider-Man's world with Peter and Harry um, you know the relationship between Peter and Harry it's like you cannot ask for a better thing as a writer you've got two people 
who are best friends, and in this context, they're also mortal enemies. They hate each other on some level, and yet they will always love each other. There's so much to do. There's so much to explore there, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, you know, Vermin, who is a character that Mike Zeck and I introduced when we were doing Captain America together, this was a chance to see, well, who is he? Where did he come from? Why? 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 Why is he this creature? You know, what is what was and, and that was part of the thing that what he went through as a child uh, created this this thing that he had become. It was his own self image, in essence, externalized as vermin. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were so many wonderful themes to explore there. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that, that always fascinates me about uh, kids that have been in an abusive situation, when you're in an abusive situation as a kid, you have no control. You feel absolutely out of control. And one of the ways in which kids uh, and, 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 and victims of this kind of abuse uh, gain control, and it doesn't make logical sense, but it's, it does in the mind of the person who's being abused, is they take the blame on themselves. If, if, if they say it's my fault, then in some sense that means they're controlling it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I got to explore with Peter, because I don't think anyone had ever explored what the death of his parents, what did that, what impact did that have on him? You know, his guilt and all that psychological stuff that goes with it didn't begin with Uncle Ben. You know, as a kid, this horrendous moment comes along where Peter discovers that both his parents are dead, he's a very young kid. And somehow he internalizes it that somehow it's his fault. And he takes on that guilt. And that's the beginning of all the guilt that drives Spider-Man, you know, throughout the years. It's always guilt that's pushing Peter. And, you know, one of the things I explore in the Ben Riley series is that, you know, Ben has that program, but he has lived a different life. And he's learned in his years on the road that he can't roll around on the ground with guilt and be driven with guilt. His philosophy is you take responsibility, you admit what you've done wrong, you take responsibility for it. And you try to change, but you can't sit there and wrestle with guilt for your whole life. And Peter, uh, I think, will always be wrestling with guilt in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So, uh, kind of a, another kind of macro question. So, when you are coming on on Spectacular, and you already know that you're going to be writing this multi-part story, so and you're going to be doing this about the Green Goblin, because even in the issue before you took you took over, it mentions that you know the Child Within is coming up. It's going to be about Green Goblin and and uh, Vermin. Was it? Were you keeping it relatively close to the vest, though, on, on how you would explore Harry? Or were you right from the get-go being like, no, I need to really bring back Harry as, as this you know chaotic force in Peter's life? Um, no, I think I knew right from the get-go what I was going to do with Harry. Yeah. Now, you know, I, here's the other thing. I write very intuitively. So I, 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 have, my, I have my map. You know, I, I, I can follow the road. I can look on the map and see the road that I want to travel. But... My philosophy is always once you have your map, then the next thing you have to do is burn your map. <laughs> and, let you know, you have to let the story and the characters lead you forward. And and so you often end up in places that you didn't expect. Like that, that, that two years on Spectacular Spider-Man ended up with Harry's death. I didn't plan that. I didn't go in from the beginning and say, and then after we do this, 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 and this. Harry will die, blah, 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 blah. No, that just it, the characters led me to that moment. Mm-hmm. And it led me through, through Child Within. Um, I have to say, just as a sidebar, I think if I was going to pick one uh, multi-part story 
Spider-Man story that I've worked on that I think is the very best thing that I've done, it probably would be The Child Within. Even more so than Craven's Last Hunt, which I know will shock people. I hear them falling off their chairs as we speak. <laughs> um, and I love Craven's Last Hunt. That story has been such a great success for so many years, and they keep reprinting it, and people keep rediscovering it and discovering it for the first time and reading it. And, and I'm very appreciative, and I, I couldn't have found a better collaborator than Mike Zeck, one of the best artists to ever pick up a pencil. But The Child Within, I, I, I like it even more. I really do. I think it, uh, it runs even deeper for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, a question before I get into the child within proper. So the issues, the issue right before it, when you had a, a Kurt Busiek was the guest artist, sorry, guest writer, I should say. Um, yeah. You have some brief moments where you have Harry Osborne hearing a voice. Was that something you would ask Kurt to put in there? Because otherwise, I mean, the whole idea of having you know this voice in Harry's head that ends up being Norman feels like very much like what you, you know what your plan was. So did I you- know, you know, hey, listen to this. I just found this out recently. I've gone along all these years thinking that Kurt had a scene in there and I thought, well, that's really cool. I'm going to use that and play with it. And I recently spoke to, I think, Danny Fingeroff, who had spoke, and he who was the editor at the time, and, and either he or he spoke to Busiek, and they said, no, you asked for that. We knew what you were doing, and then we put that in as a foreshadowing. And all these years, I thought Kurt had it in there, but I guess it was me who asked to have that in there. And I only found that out about a year ago, you know, which is pretty funny. <laughs> Because yeah, because it's interesting, right? Because he was just the guest, and you were. He was obviously kind of making time until you were, I guess, ready to take over the book. So it's interesting that you know you, you seed something even before you're there. Right? Does that? Does that? I don't remember. Does that scene happen just the issue before? Or is it a couple of issues before? It's just or? the issue before. There's a, a oh, couple, right. So then a I couldn't. Then I couldn't have seen it. You know, and it's not like I picked up the book and read it and then jumped on on it from there. So if it was the issue before, that means it had to have been planned. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's kind of like um, the the story of uh, the Venom story, where Eric Larson always had his picture in his mind that that uh, McFarlane had started the tongue uh, because of this one cover of a trade paperback, and for whatever reason, like it shows a little bit of his mouth, but he always just thought it was there was a tongue there, so he started using the tongue, not realizing he was kind of creating this giant tongue for Venom that was kind of his thing, but he thought he was just doing what McFarlane had done. So it's interesting right, it's how a, memory plays a part there. It is. It's a funny thing. It's like Giffen and I, we still have this running thing. All these years later with, with you know, the famous Bwahaha from JLI. Um, and he swears I came up with it, and I swear he came up with it. And, you know, at this point, we don't even want to know which one of us did it, you know. It's just funny that we, we have no clue. We have no clue. <laughs> Actually, so I'm, I'm going to jump from Child Within just for a second because you bring up Wahaha. So obviously the issue after Child Within or after the Aftermath issue, you have the Frogman issue, and there's a lot of yes. humor in there. And there's a lot of Wahahas. So, I mean, obviously that was very deliberate, but what was that like kind of weaving that level of humor in, especially right after such a serious story for the last seven issues? Well, that's exactly why I did it, you know. And, and the, the Frogman character I'd introduced years before in um, in Marvel Team Up, you know. So whenever he comes in, and I did some other stories with him, there's always a lightness of tone. So I was looked. It was a great way to bring that back. And as I was saying, it's, I think it was just around the same time we were wrapping up JLI. So a, I got to break the mood after like I mean. You know, seven issues of very heavy psychological drama within the context of the superhero slugfest, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted something lighter. And then at the same time, I got to pay tribute, you know, to Keith and to Andy and everybody that we worked with for all those five years and all those Justice League books. And there's Bahahas in there. There's little references, I think, to to, to Guy Gardner and Oberon and and the background. And I actually, I think I dedicated the story to Keith and Andy at the end. You did, yes. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So it was it was a way both to kind of lighten the load after seven very heavy issues, and to kind of tip my hat to to Keith, Andy, and JLI. For sure. I mean, even you even have a, a one finger moment, which I guess is uh, you know Spider Man's version of the one punch. Oh, you know. I don't know if that was intentional, but it works, doesn't it? <laughs> it does work, yeah. <laughs> well, then I think if I would see it, I'd go back now, I'd have someone going, one finger, one finger. <laughs> now, what I found really interesting when I was I was reading a lot of your run recently, and so I noticed that in the issue, the Frogman issue, in the letters pages, someone asked something that I think people have been asking for 30 years now, which is, I'm only half, this person says, I'm only halfway through, and I'm already looking forward to the trade paperback reprint. And I think we're still waiting, right? Like, it's been, in North America, it's been 30 years, and it still hasn't happened yet. And I'm sitting here, I'm in my office, I could walk over to a shelf a few feet away and pull out a beautiful Italian edition of The Child Within, hardcover, beautiful paper. And I've got other editions from other countries, and it's never been collected here. And, and I, I say this, it's the truth. It's one of my greatest frustrations. I don't understand it. I'm hoping that since this is a big anniversary year for Spider-Man, that maybe this is the year. Especially it's been done in other countries. They've got the files. You know what I mean? It's all been scanned. It's all ready to go. Mm-hmm. You know, I would love to see an omnibus with that whole the whole run with Sal, you know, right through issue 200. Um uh, but, but certainly, uh, an addition to the Child Within uh, would, would, you know, it would make me really, really happy, really, really happy. And I, I am, I am. When I see some things without mentioning some things of my own that I see get collected over the years, and I'm like, I didn't ever want to see that story again, you know. <laughs> and, and here's a story that I'm so proud of that is some of the greatest work of Sal Buscema's career, uh, and what a career he's had. So that's saying a lot. Put it out, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and Dr. Kafka's back, and, and, and she's back in the main books, and, and you know, it, it all ties in. And it ties in with this Ben Riley thing. And, the, and, and, you know, from what Marvel's telling me, this first issue of Ben Riley has been very, very successful. They're really, really happy with the way it's selling and the response they're getting. So let's jump on that bandwagon and put out the child within. For sure. It does feel like we're getting closer because, um, I mean, a, a lot of people who follow the Epic Collection line are hoping that Spectacular is one of the next kind of volumes that we eventually get to see. Uh, mm-hmm. Later this year, they're putting the first, I don't know how many issues it was, but uh, the first chunk of Spectacular Spider-Man is going into omnibus format. So, mm-hmm. again, it feels like we're getting closer to, in some way, finally getting Spectacular on, on whole yeah. collected into various different formats. So hopefully it is happening sooner than later because, again, it's it's criminal because it just it's such a fantastic Harry Osborne story like again that whole begin you know from 178 to 200 it's this beautiful story and I, I I know a lot of people echo your own frustrations and it routinely shows up on on lists of you know some of the best Spider-Man stories but it's one of the only ones on those lists usually that has never been collected yeah yeah I know I know and you know I, I used to wonder is it because it, it deals with uh, sexual abuse but you know we've seen comics dealing with some very intense stuff and that doesn't stop them from getting collected and I think we dealt with it in a very uh, honest but tasteful and tasteful way you know we it was not exploitive in any way shape or form uh the way we dealt with that issue so i, I don't i don't think that's it no. um i don't from what i've heard it's not even available on marvel unlimited no it's not yeah it's 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 very strange that's crazy yeah it's very strange it, you know when and, you talk about the, the tastefulness i mean i think it works so well because uh it does feel like um, the way in which you approach it is that if you're old enough to know what what they're talking about, you get it. But right. if, if, but if you're not, you're it's it's not 
You know what I mean? Like, it plays really well in that if you don't really know what it is, you kind of get it anyway somehow, but if you do, if you do know what it means, it, it hits all the harder. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's what I mean by it not being exploited. We weren't trying to, like, take big arrows and point to, look what we're doing. Aren't we, like, really cool and relevant? Look what we're doing. You know, it wasn't about that. It was really about treating that in a way that was very, very respectful uh, to people who have gone through such things. For sure. I mean, again, you, you played within the comics code. Like, how explicit could anything be? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, there you know there it eventually got stretched pretty pretty thin by the by the end of it. But I mean, you know, you guys were still having to adhere to those guidelines at that time. So again, you had to make it safe for print in that respect. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And honestly, uh, if there had been no code, I would have written it exactly the same way. Hmm. Now, when you were writing this for Sal, again, this is your kind of your first kind of major collaboration. Obviously, you'd worked mm-hmm. together before. How 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 intense were your plots? And I ask that more because obviously you have the running kind of theme of using um, like the surveillance footage of Vermin being in the psychiatric hospital. And right. so it broke out into, you know, a lot of different panels on those pages and they are routinely used throughout the, throughout the story. So how in depth were your plots or scripts at that point to make that sure that all, yeah, it was, it was done plot first, what, what we call Marvel style, what a lot of people don't understand. And when they hear Marvel style, they think of the stories of Stan Lee in the 60s, you know, when he'd, uh, he'd say to Jack, bring back Dr. Doom, and that was the plot, you know, or, or he'd give somebody a page and a half, uh, and, and they'd go off and they'd, they'd create the rest of the story. That's not Marvel style, as when I, when I got into the business, you know. Uh, you know, and now, even there, you know, some people write looser plots, some people write tighter plots, and sometimes it depends on the artist you're working with, and I've gone through different variations on that, but my plots are always... Very detailed, and when I in that era when I was writing for Sal, they were very detailed. So all those things you're talking about, like if you saw like a nine panel page of Harry Osborne, where it was like here's Harry's face for for eight panels, and in the ninth panel he smiles or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's all on the plot. It was all these were very 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 tight plots. When I started working with Mark Bagley on Amazing, uh, when I, after I did Spec. Mark was like, could you loosen the plots up a little bit, you know, give me a little bit more room, which I did. But here's the thing, whether it's full script or a tight plot, if I gave that plot to six different artists, you would see six different stories. Even with all my descriptions and all the things here, I want this this grid this way, on these panels this way, Mm -hmm. change this expression in this panel, uh, a different artist will tell that story very, very differently. And Sal, whatever I gave him, Sal took it and raised it up. You know, and made it even better because that's just what he does. Because Sal, first and foremost, is a great storyteller. I can describe a page or two or two page sequence to an artist, but they have to know how to draw that with the right flow. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, the wrong an artist who doesn't know what he's doing is going to pick the wrong moment in the panel to emphasize where the hand is. You know, uh, where, where the what the body language is. Uh, Sal, no, that's intuitive with him. He, it just flows, he, and he knows how to do the big moments. Right, the famous Sal Buscema punch. Nobody does a punch better than Sal. Except, except Kirby, perhaps you know, um, and and uh, and um, and yet he can do the quiet moments too. He can do the, the the subtle emotional moments. He can anything I asked him, he did it, and he did it to the very best of his ability. And although I've told this story before, I'll tell it again because it bears repeating. And here's the beauty of working plot first, quote Marvel style, is that spectacular Spider-Man one hundred uh, two hundred. Uh, the death of Harry. You look at the last three pages, I think, of that story. It's either the last two or the last three pages. I think it's three. Mm-hmm. There's not a word of dialogue 
on those pages. Now, I wrote a very tight plot. I mapped it out. I mapped out the visuals. I explained uh, in my – I would like to do little parentheticals explaining what's going on emotionally and psychologically in the characters' heads. And I thought, okay – it's a big moment, death of Harry. I'm going to get this artwork back from Sal, and I'm going to have to really schmaltz this up and bang the melodramatic gong and ring every last teardrop, you know, out of the readers' hearts, you know. And then I got these pages back, and everything I asked Sal to communicate and more was there in the artwork. So by getting the by, by getting the artwork before I do the final scripting, I'm able to look at those pages and go. That's fantastic. I don't. Have, I, I think I even started writing, a, you know, for a couple of panels. I went, no, it doesn't need it. What Sal has done has communicated perfectly what I asked for. I'm not putting a word on these pages, and I didn't. And that sequence is one of my favorite sequences, uh, you know, of anything Sal and I did together. It's just, it's perfect. And it's because of him. I, one thing I was always curious about, and I guess this is more of a Sal question than necessarily a question for you, but uh, at the at the very end of issue 189, which was the you know the anniversary issue, and you have the, the Goblin having you know kind of that that dinner, uh, and yeah. then ends up fighting a dinner party, yeah, yeah. And at the very end, when he when he's hauled away, and you have that one shot of him being kind of put in the paddy wagon, there's yeah. two panels, and it's driving away, and you just have Peter standing there in his costume, and it's just alone. And then at the end of 200, it feels like it echoes that completely. Uh, but now, instead of him being put into a paddy wagon, he's been put into an ambulance, and you know because he's died. Was that something that you had ever spoken to Sal about, kind of echoing that exact moment, or was that you something he picked that up? Was- that was in both plots, probably, and I think it was probably unconsciously echoed by both of us, echoed by me and my plot. I never thought about that till this very moment, you know, and that's the beauty. To me, that's my favorite thing about writing is that I think I'm in control, but my unconscious mind is doing all the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, later on, you know, months go by or years go by and you look at a story and you go, how the hell did I do that? Wow, look at that. And then you start, you know, just what you did, you know, drawing a line between two things that I wasn't consciously aware that I was doing. And and if Sal did it visually, he wasn't consciously aware that he was doing, I'm sure, because it was, it was probably a year later or something, right? Or close to it. Yeah. And it just, it just worked out that way. And, you know, you always have to be open to happy accidents when you're a creative person. I love, you know, these stories of the Beatles and people, well, why did you choose to do this? And, I don't know, the, the amp, there was a feedback in the amp or there was a glitch with the tape and we thought it sounded great and we left it in. You know, and a lot of creative choices kind of go that way. It's like, oh, I didn't expect that. I didn't know. Oh, let's, that's great. Let's leave it in. Oh, this echoes my theme from three issues before. That's perfect. Um, and you're not necessarily consciously thinking about it. So I'm going to ask you a question about vermin. So obviously you've had these very impactful vermin stories, both illustrated by Mike Zeck and also by Sal Buscema. When you close your eyes... Which version of Vermin do you see? I think I see Sal's because... No, I guess I see them both because the Craven story is just so so resonant and it has such a, had such a long life. But I, I, I see them both, and I don't really see any divergence between the two, despite the fact that obviously both guys have a different a drawing style. Mm-hmm. But you know what Mike and, and Sal have in common is exactly what I was just talking about. Both of them can tell a story on the page like nobody's business you know and I always say I, I say this too with Craven's Last Hunt had someone else drawn Craven's Last Hunt it might have been a very different story because we also work Marvel style and when you're working with a Mike Zeck or a Sal Buscema the storytelling is clear as day 
a different artist, sometimes the storytelling isn't clear. So you're spending part of your time in the scripting explaining the visuals. I always I say this as a joke, but it's sort of like, and you probably have seen stuff sometimes like this in a comic, where it's like, I've stumbled over that wire and I'm falling off the roof, the character <laughs> has to say, because it's not clear in the art. Whereas if a Mike Zack or a Sal Buscema draws it, it's all clear. And once that surface level of the story and those first level of emotions and both those guys, can, uh, Mike can really deliver the emotions. Look, Just look at Craven's Last Hunt and don't look at the words, just look at the pictures and you know what these guys are feeling. That allows me, as the writer to dig deeper, to drill deeper, to go down to level two with the characters, to level three and level four, to the deepest levels of their psyches, as opposed to just explaining what's happening on level one, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's the beauty of working with guys like Mike and Sal, because they are just masters of their craft. I do feel there's an interesting unsung hero of Child Within, and that's the letterer Rick Parker, because you, you use a lot of different... Uh, narrations and like different people narrating uh-huh. and and the, the choices he makes both and I don't know if maybe this was specifically him but I mean if is he coloring the boxes and like the, the no, he's, the, he's the, the, the colorist assuming that. okay but so uh, yeah. so it's a combination between the the colorist and um, the letterer to find the exact you know look for those because you have like right. the, the sickly color of the green of the narrative boxes for vermin you have the the interesting um, uh, font choice that kind of he uses to express vermin thoughts which always seem a little sketchy and scratchier uh-huh. uh, eventually and not right at the beginning but as the uh, the storyline progresses it also establishes that script for MJ's thoughts which are obviously uh-huh. very different from from Peter's it's very interesting how that really helps to channel you know which characters you're really getting into the mind of and really uh, do some of that extra lifting as well right you know and, and, and as the writer I am asking you know I might say this character upper lower case this character I want this style of lettering but then it's up to the letterer to do it and for, for me letterers are the uns, unsung heroes of comics most people don't pay attention to the lettering because if it's done right you're not going to pay attention to it mm-hmm. but for, you know it, because it's, it's supposed to flow seamlessly you know through your eyes and into your brain uh, and it's supposed to just open up those voices but for me just as you know, the inker takes the penciler and 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 does the final thing that communicates that image, along with the colorist, obviously, uh, uh, to to the reader. The, the lettering is the delivery system for my words, for my story. You know, it's the it, it, and I've seen it many, many times. You get a great letterer like Rick Parker, and Parker is great, and he's also hell of a nice guy. Um, you get a great letterer like Rick Parker, and it elevates your story. You get. I've seen other letterers, and I will never mention them by name. Uh, but suddenly, my story doesn't read as well because there's something, there's some something stiff. It's almost like it stiffens up somehow. The words stiffen up, and when I try to read them, that reads it reads clunky somehow. The same words lettered by Rick Parker will not read that way. It's a very interesting thing, and it's a very subtle thing, and most readers are not aware of it, and they shouldn't be, as I said. But the letterer is an artist with a capital A. It really, really is, and uh, I'm very, very particular about lettering. And and uh, when a good, great letterer comes along, I am so appreciative of them, and I sing their praises whenever I can because they really are uh, so, so important. And just as the, you know, I, I always say it, it takes every piece of the puzzle to make a great comic. You know, yes, the fundamentals, the 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 foundation of the building is the writer and the artist. But any of those other pieces that don't work can bring the whole building down, you know? 
Um, and so, you know, you look at you look at the, the black and white art, and then you see a colorist come along, and just the layers and the levels that they can bring to the story through the color, and. Any one of the, I've seen it writing for television also. It's like you can have a great script, but if the directing is off or if this performance by the actor is off, uh, it doesn't matter how great your script is, the building will come crashing down. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, for you know, if you have a classic story, we did a, a, a few years back at a convention in Jersey. It was the first time I was there with Mike Zek, Bob McLeod, you know, the wonderful anchor on Craven, Jim Salakrup, our editor. Uh, and Rick Parker was there. The, uh, the the colorist was not there, but it was almost the whole team. And it was the first time we'd all been in a room together because most we're all freelancers working. And we talked about that fact. Or I did. You know, it's every piece of the puzzle is hugely important. Um, and any one of those pieces can torpedo the story. Uh, the wrong person lettering the child within might have torpedoed that story. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. Yeah, as you said, like it's every piece of the puzzle, and you're right. Um, lettering is one of the things I think a lot of people do take for granted, uh, because as you said, it's, it's kind of meant to in some ways. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you know, you don't want the lettering. Way, you know, when lettering gets too fancy, it's distracting. Hmm. You know, when there are too many lettering tricks happening on the page, it's very, very distracting. The 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 lettering serves the story. I will once again because I can't, I can't help but do this. I'll relate it to the Beatles. Ringo Starr always talks about as a drummer, he's playing to the song. He's not there to dazzle you with his amazing drum fills, even though he does amazing drum fills. That's not his job. His job is to serve the song and to serve the singer. And the letterer's job is to serve the story and to serve those words and to be you know, kind of invisible. Uh, and and, and uh, like I said, I have tremendous respect for letters. They really are the unsung heroes of the business. When so in in Child Within the so the, it's interesting because I'm I'm trying to think what it would have been like to read this at the time. And it's interesting because you start off and you're thinking, okay, it's a vermin story. I'm, uh-huh. You know, and but then it's obviously much more than that because you bring in Harry Osborne as well. And so that second issue of of the you know proper six issue arc, you really get to delve more into the psychosis of what's going on with Harry. He's having the conversations with you know P, with uh, Peter and Norman in his mind. Some uh-huh. amazing imagery by by Sal because you have like him talking. To Norman, and then you have Norman, like you know, getting the the glider in front of him, like impaling him and dropping down dead in front of him. Yeah, and then you, yeah. And then you just have Spider Man kind of coming out of the shadows and talking to him, and it's a very interesting because you know, in his mind's eye, Spider Man is a lot more brutal than he ever would normally be, um, mm-hmm. because again, it's it's two aspects of his mind kind of playing against him. So yes. What was it like, kind of crafting that in a way that felt very true to? what someone like Harry would be dealing with. Like, it's, he's had mental illness before. You're really delving into it in a very, I would say, pretty tasteful manner because you're trying to show all the different things that he's dealing with. He's we're trying to overcome, again, the, these traumas. You know, just seeing him with his son and trying to be, like, very, almost too much, right? Like, he's trying so hard to be the best dad yeah. because he didn't have that. And at the same time, lashing out because he's dealing with this trauma. What was it like to kind of get into that with, with Harry? Well, you know, it's what it's like with, with, with any story. Uh, I, I, you, you have to completely immerse yourself in these characters. You, ha- you have to become Harry Osborne to write Harry Osborne. And the truth is, as human beings, we all contain everything. We really do. And I think the difference between writers and, and maybe some other people are that we are generally aware of all those crazy corners of our psyche. <laughs> maybe that's what drives us to be writers, you know? Um so, you know, you can only write the, quote, villain if you understand the villain. It doesn't matter how twisted. There's a part of the human psyche 
that is twisted. And we may never act on that, and most of us may even repress that, but there's a, you know, look around in the corners and you'll find all kinds of interesting, we contain, we contain universes, each one of us, you know, so you have to become the character, so you have to immerse yourself in Harry and what he's going through, and, and on, a, on a more mundane level, we've all gone through things in our lives that can relate to what Harry's going through, maybe, you know, comics by their nature are more melodramatic and we blow that up on a big screen, but you want the kernel of truth to always be there, you know, uh, you're acting it out on a bigger screen, but, but it's something that's genuine, authentic, and true. And I guess that's the thing in the end. You want the characters to be authentic. And if someone's going through a struggle like Harry, you want it to be psychologically and emotionally authentic. And so I had to reach into things in my own life uh, that can connect to Harry. And that's, so that's part of it. Is, it's, it's a contradiction. Part of it is to find the things inside yourself to connect to that character. So it's all me, no matter how you look at it. Every character, like I always say, every character in Craven's Last Hunt, Peter, Craven, Vermin, they're all some aspect of my psyche and what I was going through in my life at that time. At the same time, these characters take on lives of their own, completely separate from me. So another part of me is just listening to Harry, is listening to Peter, is listening to Vermin to understand who they are. So it's this interesting fusion of myself and these independent entities, because that's the, that's the paradox. We put as much of ourselves into these characters as we possibly can, and then they take on lives of their own, and then they lead us off into the story to places we never expected. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of the wonderful paradoxes of, of creation and story. What's so interesting about, especially in this the second issue in particular, about Spider-Man is seeing him... You know, he's dealt with. He had this trauma that happened in Craven's Last Hunt. He hasn't really mm-hmm. dealt with it, and now he's face to face with Vermin, who is representative of that moment in his life. And so it's right. harder. He's always a compassionate person, but it's now harder for him to access that compassion. And instead, you have Doctor Kafka showing all the compassion and really, you know, trying to do everything she can to help protect this this scared person who is inside Vermin. And Spider Man cannot access that compassion immediately. And it's so interesting to see that version of Peter because it makes complete sense, even though it's not the Peter maybe we're used to. Seeing. But again, you're you're digging into what does being buried alive do to you, and then yeah. any connection to that experience would have a very visceral reaction and make it harder for you to be, you know, your authentic self because you're you're dealing with that trauma that you thought you've dealt with but you haven't. Right, he's got PTSD, basically. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's his one of one of his journeys in the story is ultimately to find that compassion where 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 vermin is concerned. You know. Um, and, 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 you know, and that's the same thing we were just talking about with, with when you write the, quote, villains. And I put villains in quotes because you can't write them as villains. No matter how twisted they are, no matter what they're doing that's, that may be awful, you have to have compassion for them in the sense that you have to know the forces that created them and made them that way and, 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 and see the pain that drove them to that place. You know, that was the thing that drove Craven's Last Hunt. was like my question was, well, what was it that drove this guy that made him, you know, want to put on leopard skin pedal pushers, grab a gun, and hunt people? You know, it's like, you know, my question is, well, what did his mother do to him? Oh, my God, you know? Um, and once you answer that question, you may still oppose the so-called evil, but you will also have compassion for it. And that's a better, the better way to stop the opponent or, or, or change the opponent is through compassion. You know, if we want to get uh, a little deeper, you know, you talk about the Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu uh, holy text. You know, they're going into war 
But Krishna's advice is you can't go to war with hate in your heart. Um, that's a tough one. And yes, that's, in one way or the other, that's one of our battles in life. You know, we're not, we're not on chariots going into war or wearing costumes punching people in the face, but we're in these kind of situations constantly in our lives. And I find for me that by being able to get into these characters' heads, even the worst characters, and finding a place where I have compassion for them allows me to bring that out into my life. And hopefully when you read stories like that where you can have compassion for the so-called villain – you can bring that perspective out into your life and have more compassion for the people around you in your life, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a beautiful sequence in the in the third issue is that you have, uh, again, a very technically crowded page. You have uh, 12 panels, and it's supposed to be, uh, you know, looking at a photo album. And you have yes. you know, him, P- P- um, Harry talking to these specters of Peter and Norman, mm-hmm. and they're, they're being very like, mean to him and mean to each other as he's going through this book. And you also have some of the pages of, you know, you see that the, the picture's been kind of ripped out. Yes. Uh, and that absence really speaks to, again, the fractured mind that you have uh, of Harry. And, and then, so you have this beautiful page of all these kind of different snapshots of, of Harry's life. And then you have this beautiful full-page shot of just Harry just not knowing what to do. The, the look on it, the expression on his face is just totally lost. And you have these two specters just kind of hovering over him. You have Peter's looking very, like, kind of looking down on, on Harry. And Norman's, like, so angry wanting to give him the mask. Um, it's just such a fascinating... Uh, like, Sal really picked up the ball and ran with it here. Like it's, Yes, he, he absolutely did. He absolutely did. And that's what I mean about being able to communicate these emotions so clearly. You know, you look. You, you know, you look at those pages, and you know what's going on. You know what's going on in Harry. And even though these guys are specters, they're they're aspects of his psyche. So we know what they're feeling and thinking and communicating just by looking at it. And that allows me to take the story to a whole other level. Yeah, uh, I was uh, rereading it today because I, I wanted to again have it a little fresh in my mind. Uh, and my my son came and kind of looked over my shoulder, and it was uh, on the sequence um, a couple pages later where you have. Um, Harry kind of realizing that in his mind like he's seen um, his dad die again and he's looking at it and then suddenly you, you realize that he's still just in his living room he takes the family photo album and just starts ripping it up and my son was like oh no don't rip up your photos like <laughs> like, like didn't, didn't really know the context of what was going on but just even just having that moment like that's it's a very interesting visceral moment especially in this period where you know you didn't have digital photos everywhere but you had you know these few artifacts of a life and you have yeah. him ripping them up is a very it feels very visceral. Yes, and if you ripped it up, that was it. You know, unless you save those uh, those negatives somewhere. You know what I mean? You rip that picture up, that picture's gone. For sure. And so. yet, of course, for Harry, you know, ripping up the, the pictures of the past doesn't destroy the past inside him that's eating away at him. When you have him, um, when you have Harry finally, you know, kind of confront Spider-Man, who's already at wit's end dealing with the vermin thing and, and his own PTSD, and you have him, um, you know, kind of drug him, was was there any conversation about you know should we show him basically going on a hallucinogenic trip or was there any issue with that? No, there wasn't, as I recall. And you know, the idea of the psychedelic pumpkin bomb thing goes back to Lee and Ramita. Hmm. There was one of those old, old it might have been in, in uh, the 
the Spectacular Spider-Man magazine that they did back in the 60s. But I remember there was definitely a, you know, they didn't use it quite the same way that I used it, but there was a psychedelic pumpkin bomb, because I guess it was the 60s and everybody was thinking about psychedelics, um, that 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 he used against Peter. I would, I'll have to dig up that story somewhere and see how it was used. But I, I know it had been established. So it wasn't like I suddenly said, ooh, why don't we have a psychedelic experience, you know, when the Green Goblin will do this? But it, it had already been established that it was possible. Hmm. One thing that you really lean heavily into here, and I feel like a lot of writers have done this, not just with Harry, but also with Norman later, is this idea that it's not the masks, it's these two men named Osborne and Parker. And it feels, again, very true to their conflict. And again, it feels like a lot of writers have kind of taken this lead and, may, and in fact, and sometimes almost used the exact lines, um, and not just with Harry, but also with Norman. Um, is that really indicative of what you think this problem is between these two men? It isn't the masks, it is... Osborne and Parker forever linked? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. And especially Peter and Harry, you know what I mean? Uh, first of all, whenever you write Spider-Man, and I think any Spider-Man writer would tell you this, you're not writing Spider-Man. You're always writing Peter Parker. Mask on, mask off. It's Peter Parker. Uh, and, and because the character, he's, you know, he's one of the most well-defined characters in the history of comics, one of the most uh, three-dimensional and realistic and believable human beings in, 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 in superhero comic history, you know? And, and so here's Harry, his best friend. It doesn't matter whether he's wearing the goblin mask or not. It's Peter and it's Harry. And, you know, honestly, in the end, if you write these characters well, that should be true of almost every character. There will always be exceptions to that. You know, the Red Skull really becomes the Red Skull. You know, that's who he is. <laughs> and although I did kind of an origin story for him when I was writing Captain America, but you know, he is fused with that mask to the point where there's no there's no person beneath. It's just who he is. Um, but for the most part, I think if you write these characters correctly, it's always the people beneath the mask. You know, then you, you know you have a character like Batman, where it's like. There's a line between Bruce Wayne and Batman sometimes where it seems to weave back and forth, you know, where, where Bruce puts on the mask and, and sometimes he becomes the mask and he forgets himself, you know. And the great thing with a character like Batman, though, is that there's so many different interpretations. I've written so many different versions of Batman that, that in some ways are contradictory to one another, and yet at their heart they're the same Batman because you can play with that line between, uh, you know, uh, like I, I don't buy into the, the psychotic Batman, although I have written a Batman that leans into that. I really believe in the Batman who was truly uh, a good and decent guy who was kind of like his father was a doctor and now he's just a doctor in a different way because his patient has got them and he's just trying to save the life of this patient in the best way possible. I just kind of went off the track, but the point is, yeah, it's Peter and it's Harry. It's not Spider-Man and the Green Goblin. Putting on those masks just kind of heightens, you know, it's, it's it's a heightening of whatever psychological reality, you know, Harry's got goblins within while well, he puts on that mask and he becomes that goblin within himself, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, in the in the fourth chapter, you, you start... You, the first three pages are really interesting because you start with what you kind of used in the last few issues where you have uh, the, you know, the, the, the video banks kind of monitoring one of right. the sessions, and then you have these two really brilliant, very, completely silent panels, um, and they echo each other, where you have you know a shot of the house that... Berman's mother is in, her looking at the book of, you know, very young Edward and kind of uh-huh. looking at that. And then the next page, it's a sad reflection of what he is now, where you have instead the exact same panel work, but this time it's Kafka and she's looking at, you know, a dossier and just a shot of, you know, this, this frightened and sad vermin. 
it's so visceral and it really hits, but it's so well laid out. And I, I guess in your plot, you probably had exactly the, the breakdown of the panels, but Sal really sells it as well. Yes. Again, you know, uh, I could have had that same exact breakdown and given it to three other guys and it wouldn't have been as good as what Sal did because he knows exactly what to emphasize and how to emphasize and how to bring that out. When you do finally have, uh, so in this issue is when, you know, you, uh, you have uh, Harry really send Peter Parker on his, uh, his psychedelic journey. But before he does that, it's so interesting because you have him saying like, you know, Peter, I'm sorry, but then immediately says, you made me do this. So it's interesting, like, right. it, it sounds right. very like right. contrite and saying like, I am sorry for doing this, but also, you know, it's not my fault. And that seems uh, very indicative of what Harry is, is that he's not really taking blame, blame or responsibility, whereas Peter's all about responsibility. It's interesting to see those different right. you know perspectives jut up against each other. And then there's just the fact that there's there's the, the vulnerable Harry who loves his friend and the other Harry who just you know he needs someone to lay all this on because it's just there's just too much pain so if i put it on him and i say it's his fault then it's not my pain anymore you know and if i and somehow if i can punish him same thing that craven was going through i never thought about that in a very different way by creating this image of the spider which was an image in his own mind it's not who peter was mm-hmm. you know he created that because he needed something to project his own pain onto and if i can stop the spider then my own pain in essence will stop um yeah yeah, that's good. I never thought about that connection between those two stories before. When you have Peter kind of going through, again, this journey, um, it's it's very interesting. And again, this is a, a big part of you know the lettering and the placement of the lettering, is that when Peter kind of goes nuts and crazy because of uh-huh. everything he's been dri- driven to, and you're having all the lettering boxes are like kind of all over the place to show just how jumbled his mind is, it's one of those things that, again, the comics does so differently and so beautifully because, you know, you understand that he's going through something, but there's just something about having this weird placement of where the letters are and having it all over the place as opposed to just kind of your typical letterbox is really evokes exactly what you're trying to express with both with the artwork and the intention behind it. Right, because the, 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 the way those the, the lettering is done there, it reflects the kind of fragmented nature of the person's thoughts. Exactly. You know, and and in those days, um, it was before, you know, everything was scanned on a computer, so I would get um, uh, Xeroxes of each page, and I would place the balloons myself. Oh, know? did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I wanted these things, of course, you know, the letter would do it a hundred times better than I ever could in terms of the placements. But at least I can communicate where I want this to be, how I want this to feel, and then they take that and they run with it. Um, now, you know, basically, you know, since everything comes through the computer, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't place the balloons anymore. Uh, the the editor will do that. The editor will place the balloons, and even then, you know, the editor might look at a page and go, "I don't like that balloon placement," and move it. Or even the letter might sometimes move it, and then sometimes I'll get the pages back and go, "No, I want that balloon back over there," or whatever. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, that's, that's comics, you know, uh, uh, there's, you know, there's a rhythm to a comic book page and, you know, we work in these little blocks of copy. Mm-hmm. There's a block here and a block here and a block here. And just the way sometimes those blocks are placed on the page, cause it's all a visual experience, not just the artwork, you know, the way our eye follows the balloons, follows the captions that creates a certain rhythm and a feeling in our head. So that goes back to what I was saying about everything in a comic book story having to work together mm. to uh, to really make for a successful story. For sure. What I find, again, going to the idea of Harry kind of not always being sure of exactly who he is in this story, because, again, he oscillates between being the vulnerable Harry who cares for his friend and also the one who's very angry at him, is that when you do see Peter freaking out, 
his immediate reaction is, you know, what's the matter with you? Calm down, whatever it is, I'm here. It'll be all right. Which is so fascinating to see, again, that Harry can't really pick a side yet. Yeah, yeah, he can't. He's completely, he's completely divided, completely divided. It is also interesting because, again, later on, you, you know, you have eventually Harry uh, take the serum and get powers of his own, but here he obviously doesn't. And having him so completely outmatched because you have Peter out of his gourd and just kind of throwing him against the wall so casually yeah. because this this is, you know, he's always holding back. And I always like the idea that, you know, if you really saw Peter doing everything he could do, you know, not many people could actually stop him. Right, right, right. Because, you know, Peter, Peter is always kind of keeping himself on, in check to some degree. I did a story, it was a little short story a few years back for one of the Spider-Man anthology books called The Punch, and it was set very, very early, like the first week maybe of Spider-Man's career, and he goes to stop some guy who's robbing a store, but he hasn't learned to check his punch yet, and just slams this guy, and the guy gets, you know, broken ribs and broken arms and, you know, all this stuff, and, and he's horrified, you know, so he knows, he's learned over the years to keep this stuff in check, but in a situation like this, He's completely out of control and nothing's in check. He could have killed Harry. Mm-hmm. In the following issue, when you have you know Kafka kind of trying to sort of lead Spider-Man back out into the light and try to you know kind of prepare him somewhat, you have a prolonged sequence which obviously brings to mind Craven's Last Hunt because you have you know Peter kind of trembling you know trembling naked through his psyche and then kind of realizing that mm-hmm. he's a man again. Was were you giving kind of direct um, instructions for Sal to kind of ape what had been done in Craven's Last Hunt? Or what oh, was absolutely, it? yeah, yeah. Because I think there were, the, the imagery was taken, if I'm remembering correctly, was he like crawling out of a tunnel? Is that where he's crawling out of the tunnel? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That comes right out of that's that's what Peter went through in, in, in Craven's Last Hunt. So yeah, that was very very conscious. A very broad question about Ashley Kafka. So oh, she's changed obviously throughout the years, and yeah. like I mean, there's an um, I think. Spectacular Spider-Man 241, which is obviously much later, when Luke Ross is doing the art, she becomes a much more younger and attractive version of the character. Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of those things that seems to happen in comics, you know? <laughs> uh, it's like, I specifically asked for her to be a woman in her 40s, attractive, but not a comic book babe, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a regular, attractive woman in her 40s. And somehow, as it went along, you know, the, each artist that got hold of her made her younger and younger and and you know by the time we got <laughs> the next run of spec it's like she suddenly looks like she's a 30 year old super babe you know mm-hmm. and i specifically asked when we're doing ben riley to please let's go back to the original version of kafka and keep her you know keep her like that not somebody you know in a tight skirt and an hourglass figure you know no for sure when you do have the final kind of battle and you have, you know, ver- vermins there, but you also have the goblin kind of hovering above everyone, um, was that something very early on? You're like, okay, they're all going to kind of be in that same spot, but really this is about Harry. What, did I have that in mind from the beginning? Well, like, you have, you have like, you finally have, you have uh, Spider-Man fighting vermin, uh, and vermin is on, you know, on the rooftop, and it, it looks like, you know, that, that, that battle's almost over, and now you have the goblin show up to kind of, you know, make everything more complicated. Was that very early on, you're like, no, I need to have all my principles in this, in this place together? Early on, I probably wasn't even thinking about it. Like I said, <laughs> I, I, I don't plan that carefully most of the time. <laughs> I, I just sort of, like, I, 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 I grapple with my characters, I grapple with my themes, I kind of... I, I, I head out on that road and I see where they're, they're going to lead me, you know? So I, I don't think early on I knew that's what, where it was going to end or even how it was going to end. I didn't know. You know, one of the interesting things about the ending was one of the reasons why we did the aftermath issue 
is that, you know, part six ends with Harry just leaving and Peter lets him leave, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Danny Fingeroth, my editor, uh, said, we can't do that. He has to at least go look for him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's Spider-Man. He's got to go look for the bad guy, you know. So that's why we ended up doing the aftermath issue, which was, it turned out to be a great thing because it was such a big, intense, uh, gut-wrenching story that we needed these characters to process for an issue mm-hmm. everything that had happened. For sure. So a question. You have this extremely, like, really well-done pivotal moment that, again, Salverly hits it out of the park where you have Peter just kind of saying, then do it, kill me. And, you know, Harry's struggling with this. He sees the specter of his dad urging him on. He goes towards him, and he just can't do it, right? And so, like, which is incredibly strong. Do you think in that moment, like, I mean, obviously this is, you know, conjecture for those characters, but do you think Peter really was just giving him up, or do you think he had something else up his sleeve? Because you don't have any narration from Peter here, right? So we don't really get the sense of what Peter's actually thinking. Do you think he was actually, you know, ready to sacrifice it, or do you think he knew that he'd be able to get through to Harry? Oh, I, I think on some level, you know, he's he's sort of working the way I was saying I'm working with the story. He's been doing this so long, he's working on instinct. Mm. But on some level, I think he really believed deep down that Harry could never do it. Mm. It's Again, it's an extremely pivotal moment and again it's so interesting to see and even the him screaming at Peter you know why can't I kill you um, is again very evocative and he just having you know Harry on his knees just being like you know he cannot figure out why he can't end what he thinks is his suffering and then he takes off and then at the end of the issue you see him kind of leaving his family leaving his child and just having this look of anguish on his face which is very different from you know the, the cackling that we saw earlier again it's such an interesting you know, perspective to take on Harry and then you don't leave it alone you have Peter looking for Harry for issues uh, you know you it's this constant theme going on until we finally see Harry again that this specter you know just hangs over the run and then although as you said you didn't necessarily intend for Harry to die in 200 in retrospect it feels very natural because you know what other way could this eventually go yeah yeah and you know, just as just as uh, Child Within is probably my favorite Spider-Man arc that I've ever done, Two Hundred is probably my favorite single issue of Spider-Man, and one of my favorite single issues of anything, uh, certainly in the superhero universes that I have ever done. You know, and uh, and what you know, again, I didn't I didn't say I'm going to set out from the beginning of this and end up doing a two-year uh, epic about Harry and Peter. I thought I'm going to do this first story, and that would be that. But once you set these guys in motion, you know. Harry just wanted to come back, and uh, Peter knows he's over his, and it just it just grew from there. So then, a few you know months go by, and you bring him back. You put him back in the shadows. Months go by, and you bring him back again, and then it all comes to this climax that in the beginning I had never planned. It always feels, and I, I love hearing you talk in interviews about your writing process and how characters kind of move through you, etc. And it always makes me feel like you know you're kind of the the uh, it's comic book jazz for you like you're you know you're kind of like it seems so like effortless but it seems so natural that these characters kind of meld in and out of things and you know these plot lines move and they just kind of naturally meet where they need to beat and it's just so interesting to hear you talk about it yeah like i said before i like having a map but i've learned that you have to you have to be ready to burn the map along the way so you want both you need a sense of your story and where you, and your characters and where you want to go but once you, you know, it's like a top. Once you start it spinning, you know, you got to let it spin in whatever direction it wants to spin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's that's when it's working at its very best. Other times, you know, sometimes it just comes up. I've been working on a story this past week where I'm like on the ground wrestling with this thing. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> like I'm on top. Now it throws me over. It's on top and we're wrestling. But I know the moment will come when the wrestling will stop and that unconscious door, you know, will open up. 
and it will just take off the way it's supposed to take off, you know? Um, I remember years ago, I, I was working on a pro I was working on uh, an early movie version of the Daredevil movie. I was working with uh, Chris Columbus, uh, who was a producer, and my, my friend Carlo Carlet, who was supposed to direct it. This is before the, the, the other guys came along that ended up doing the movie. Mm. And I was working on the treatment, and I had all the pieces of the story, you know? I had it all, all, all settled, but I could not make this damn thing work. <laughs> and when it's sometimes when it's not working, I remember saying to my wife, I said, it's like there are demon claws in my head raking through my brain. It hurts, you know? And it just tormented me and tormented me. And I was, you know, talking to one of the producers and he was, well, what if you could do this? What if you do that? And he's sending me ideas and, and I just couldn't make it work. And I had, I decided like on a Thursday, uh, you know what? I'm going to have to call them up and tell them I can't do this. I have, the story has completely defeated me. And I went to sleep and I woke up Friday morning and I opened my eyes and went, oh, <laughs> that's what I have to do because while I'm sleeping my unconscious mind is sorting through all this stuff you know and I got up and in a white heat I wrote the whole damn thing and it was done and it was right you know so so sometimes you do rest, you know sometimes you click in right away and you're off and sometimes you have to do a little wrestling first mm -hmm. but you still have to come to that point where that click happens and you're off and then sometimes you're off again and you get to a, a, a part in the middle where you're like how am I going to make this? I can't quite get these pieces. I can't quite make it work. So you have to wrestle a little bit again until your unconscious mind goes, get out of the way. I've got this, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I'll let you go in just a moment because I know we're, we're kind of sure. over time. But one thing I've always wanted to ask, and I might have actually asked it partially on the last episode but uh, that we did together, Spectacular Spider-Man 241 is an issue I've always really treasured and enjoyed. It's so fascinating to me that it seems like it's the only – issue that was really a, a clone saga epilogue in terms of pushing the characters uh, out of you know the, what had just happened into something new and the only one that really you know dealt with the fact that they'd lost you know, baby may oh so this is this was my first issue on spec when i came back when you right? came back yeah and so I've, I've always been intrigued by this because no other writer like every other writer who was writing the ongoing books just kind of you know moved the story forward but didn't really talk about it and yours actually mm -hmm. had the characters grappling with loss and, and moving forward together as you know as a married couple. And I've just always been—I don't know—I don't even know if I have a question per se. It's just more of a thank you because um, it feels very uh, true. I mean, I, I haven't obviously dealt with a stillborn child, but I've dealt with miscarriage and et cetera. And it feels very accurate portrayal of you know this couple trying to put things back together and move forward together. And it feels very honest and. I just always really enjoyed that part of the story, so I just wanted to kind of thank you for it. Oh, thank you. And what I recall is Luke Ross did a beautiful job with that one. Because there's another one where there's like a whole sequence there without any words on it. Mm -hmm. um, because I looked at Luke's artwork and it was like, that's exactly what I asked for and more, and I'm going to shut up and let the pictures tell the story. And, um, you know, I have to say one more thing just as we go back to... Uh, to the child within is yeah I have to give a lot of credit to our editor Danny Fingeroth because another editor would have been sitting on my chest you know mm -hmm. you want to do what you want to get into what themes you want you know and Danny had faith in me and trust in me and he let me do what I wanted to do and you know Danny's the kind of editor he would read over every issue pour over every word and call me up with questions and as long as I could answer those questions he let me go you know and, and so another editor I would not have been able to even do that story you know, so I, I uh, 
Danny, I know you're out there because I talk to you regularly. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say if you're out there, but I know he's out there. So, <laughs> okay. It's interesting, as you said, like the, the the unsung heroes, the ones who don't get the accolades. But you know, the the could the, none of this could have existed without everyone working together. Yes, exactly. You know, another editor would have said no, or they would have been like, you know, really, really leaning over my shoulder. And when an editor leans over your shoulder too much, it really inhibits your creative process. Mm. You know, it inhibits, then you start making choices going, well, is he going to object to this? Is she going to think this about that? Or and, and suddenly you're stuck. You know, whereas when you have an editor that, you know, the ideal editor-writer relationship, and I certainly had that with, with Danny Fingeroth, um, is... You really respect each other professionally, and you like each other personally, hmm. and then then you're set. You know, I've had editors that I've worked with where I really respected them, but not that I disliked them. But we didn't have that 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 nice personal connection. It was more just the professional thing. Others I may have really liked personally, but you know, I didn't necessarily think they were such a great editor, even though I liked them. Mm-hmm. You know, you want people like like Danny Fingerworth or Danny Kazan, who I'm working with right now, people that you like personally and you respect professionally. And then, you know, you can do anything together. It's interesting because, as you mentioned, like, I guess it's that difference between, you know, writing for the story and writing for the editor. You know, you want to feel like you're, 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 doing the, you're doing the work for the story and you don't want to feel like, you know, you're, you're just writing for that editor to, for them to be happy as opposed to letting the story breathe and be happy. It's, in, right, in and of right. Because you, if you're working with a certain editor and you see them, like, jumping down on things consistently... It's kind of like getting hit hit in the head with a two-by-four. Even if they stop hitting you in the head, you're still flinching, waiting for the next two-by-four to come, you know? Um, and it can get that way with a, with, a, with a certain kind of editor, you know? And uh, I, haven't, I haven't encountered many of those over the years, but it can be very demoralizing. Okay. And, you know, and sometimes it's not the editor, it's the editor above the editor's head, you know? I've had things where editors have, oh, this is a great story, let's do it just this way. And then the editor-in-chief or whoever the guy is above his head says, no, we can't do that or we need to change this or we need to change that and and it's demoralizing for sure well jm again thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat about your work with us and i I really appreciate your time it's a pleasure i I, i'm amazed that i remember so much about this story i thought (laughs) you're gonna ask me these questions i'm gonna go i don't know you know but uh you evoked it so well for me that it brought back uh, the memories of its creation so thank you my pleasure again thank you so much thanks